Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter again is Adam White, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where he focuses on American constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, and the administrative state. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Adam. Thanks, Phoebe. Thanks, Robert. Great to be here. It's great to have you, Adam. You are one of our superstar scholars, and we're just so proud to have you with us at AEI. And this is going to be a great show because we've got a lot to talk about considering the Supreme Court's recent term. But Phoebe, you go first. You have the first question. Okay, great. So kind of, I was curious to just hear, looking back across this last term, what surprised you the most of the many decisions that came down? We had a leak, we had non-delegation doctrine, federal power. Was there anything that you were taken aback by, thought it would turn out differently? No, I saw it all coming from the start. (laughs) That's a great question. I'm proud to say I wasn't surprised by any of the outcomes. I'd say I was startled by the, the leak, obviously. Nobody saw that coming. And I was dismayed by the political rhetoric that we saw ramped up around the court. And if I was surprised by one thing, it was that the attacks on the court started as early as they did. I knew that the end of the term would be ugly politically, no matter which way, say, the Dobbs case was decided. But when we started to see really full-throated attacks on the court's legitimacy as early as December of last year, just as the commission I was serving on was wrapping up its business, I was taken aback by that, and I thought, oh, we're in for an even uglier year beard politically. But in terms of the outcomes of the cases, I don't remember being terribly surprised by any of them, um, including the Dobbs case. I'd say this year from the start seemed like it was going to be a generational turning point for the court, Mm -hmm. a shift not just from the left to the right, but also raising some interesting new debates among conservatives on the court, and that definitely played out through the year. So one of the comments that I've heard a lot about is that the the Dobbs decision was sort of the result of a 30-year effort on part of conservatives, the Federal Society, and others, and grassroots supporters of bringing, returning that question to the, the people or the states, as the, as the opinion says. Do you agree with that? Is this, is this the result of a long-term 30-year effort that shows the power of people who get involved and work hard on tough issues to change the course of the law and, and the course of America? Yeah, in a sense, I'd say Justice Alito's opinion for the majority in Dobbs, from the moment it was the, the draft was leaked, it struck me as the epitome or the culmination of originalist thought and the originalist style of judging, or a contrast with the, the style of judging and opinion writing when, say, Roe was decided. Justice Alito's decision begins with the text, it then steps back and thinks about sort of history and the context surrounding the text and then backs up and thinks about stare decisis. And that progression of thought, the, the original meaning of the text, the history, the institutional questions, questions of stare decisis, really epitomized what originalism was trying to do from the start when the conservative was trying to do from the start in putting the text front and center and finding the proper places for these other important but not primary considerations. So Justice Alito's opinion was the culmination of of this intellectual movement, but institutionally, again, starting with the Federalist Society, I'd say this creation of a place, an institution, a constellation of institutions, all playing their role in sort of making an argument for the Constitution, surely 
the Dobbs decision with its culmination, not in the sort of the ugly way that I think Sheldon Whitehouse and others would have it be seen as sort of a conspiracy. No, this was a public debate that eventually was won both politically and legally by a group of lawyers and thinkers. So the fundamental question that Justice Kavanaugh refers to in his concurrence and also Justice Leto, and we've spent a lot of time discussing the draft and, and Justice Leto has, has been at AI for an important uh, uh, conference and and that's gotten a lot of coverage and it's very, very solid opinion. But the key question is who decides? So the court is saying the question first is not what's right or wrong with regard to abortion law. It's who should make this decision, mm-hmm. Right. And they've sent it back to the people's representatives in the states. And so what I want to ask you about it, do do you have any concern that about what will be the outcome of that in the country? And looking out now, you know, every day we're getting another story about this state does this and that state does that. How do you respond to that incoherence and flux? Well, it sure beats having these issues dictated to us by by five to nine lawyers in Washington. It's going to be much messier. And issues out of the Supreme Court, at least in the first instance, and bringing them back to the states and elsewhere where they'll be decided, that will change the way these things are debated, maybe for better, maybe for worse. But it's good that it's being done differently. I'm very, very pro-life. I want to be very clear here. Very, very pro-life. Very happy to see the way the case is decided. But I, I would never say that abortion is a simple issue. And in the states, there's going to be hard questions that a lot of people on the right and left in government have never had to grapple with seriously about defining in law the limits of power of government to dictate what women whose lives are in danger during pregnancy, the decisions that they and their doctors can make. That's going to be very, very difficult to legislate, and especially when you move one step further beyond clear cases where life is in imminent danger and you go into questions of health and so on. Those are going to be hard. The arguments are often going to be ugly. I think the debate to this point has often been superficial because so much of it has been taken out of the hands of the states and been brought to the Supreme Court. So I am in the short term wary of what these debates are going to look like, but in the long term, I've got confidence in the American people that will actually be able to to resolve these. I do want to say, though, the opinions in Dobbs, they talk about returning these things to the states. Phoebe was kind enough to mention, you know, my my professional obsession with the administrative state. (laughs) I think we need to keep in mind that even more quickly than going back to the states, a lot of these issues will be funneled into the administrative state especially at the federal level with the FDA, HHS, and other agencies. You see calls for President Biden to take action, maybe even doing abortions in, in, on federal lands and so on. As with everything in our government, this will first and foremost be channeled into the administrative state in ways that I think are going to be just as divisive as what we saw for the last 50 years in and around the courts. So in other words, this issue is not going away. It's actually going to be more even, more even front and center in the discussion among the people. Yeah. It's just not going to be decided by nine lawyers in Washington. It's, it's been returned to the people. There, there will be Supreme Court cases over right to travel, over how we interpret federal laws. There's going to be lots of Supreme Court cases in the future, but they're going to be different. So I want to ask you about the dissent. Maybe just start out with a simple question. What did you think of the dissent? There's no there there other than stare decisis. This has been the challenge with Roe from the very beginning, that as, as John Hart Ely famously wrote, and his liberal law professor from Harvard famously wrote, the problem with Roe isn't that it was bad constitutional law, it's that it wasn't constitutional law and betrayed sort of no need to pretend to be constitutional law. Ever since then, Roe has been argued about and defended strictly in terms of stare decisis. 
In fact, I had a piece not long ago in, in the Wall Street Journal saying that the Roe debate really deformed our understanding of stare decisis overall. I think the dissent was a good example of this. At the end of the day, there was no affirmative constitutional argument for Roe and Casey other than as a sheer, sheer assertion of judicial power that now needed to be defended as precedent. You know, I'm going to have to challenge you a little bit on that, Adam, because I agree with you that the original decision was weak and, and you know, lacking in depth. But and when I first read the dissent, I actually heard sort of the smart alecky Justice Kagan's poking in her very smart way. I think her voice is very much in the opinion. But when I read it the second time, I saw a much greater emphasis on the liberty of women. It's an opinion really about women. And it's basically saying that the right to an abortion is key to women being viewed as equal participants in in American life. And that's a pretty strong argument that I before I heard it about privacy and control over a woman's body, but not, I mean, the Roe and Casey had protected the liberty and equality of women. Granting her full equality meant giving her substantial choice over this most personal, most consequential of all life decisions. Then it talks about the court's opinion, and it says that from the very moment of fertilization, according to the court, a woman has no rights to speak of. Now, that is different than the previous, to me, maybe it isn't, but I had not seen this focus on the curtailment of women's rights and of their status as free and equal citizens. What about that? I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, this is very much, I think, consistent with Ruth Bader, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg's assessment of abortion rights. She, too, was dissatisfied with the original argument, the original opinion in Roe, and I think throughout her career really saw this more in terms of equality, equal rights of women. I'll just say as a, a tangent to this, it is interesting to see arguments about women and womanhood suddenly coming to the forefront on these debates in an era when questions about gender sort of have been in flux in years. Suddenly this really is about women as women. And I take that very, very seriously. It's just never been the argument that's come from sort of the legal doctrines and from the parties in favor of this. This has always been a project about privacy and never an argument okay, in, so, in Roe and Casey itself about Right. About so you're, women. you're agreeing with me that there is some new, new language and new justification here that it hadn't been before I mean, it's, it, she, you know, I mean, there's this whole thing about let's remember who made the decision of, in the 14th Amendment. And then they have this, even in the face of public opposition, we uphold the right of individuals, dash, yes, including women, to make their own choices and chart their own future, or at least we once yeah. did. But I'm going to just ask you, you have daughters, right? I, I do. I have four oh, daughters. Okay. Yeah. Do you believe that their ability to be free and equal participants in American society is hindered by losing the right to an abortion. I always hate beginning any answer to any question with as the father of daughters. Yeah. Because even as a husband and a father of daughters, I can't pretend to begin to know how they see their lives and how they will, they will see their lives as a woman in a world where they face such competing demands, internal and external, their careers, family, all of that. Even as a father, I'm at best going to be just a, a spectator, hoping and encouraging them to do the best they can. And so that's one of the reasons why I do sort of hedge what I say about these, these issues. 
I start from this being very pro-life for the sake of, of unborn boys and girls alike, but knowing that once they are born, boys and girls, men and women, both will face enormous challenges and, and that ab- the debates about abortion and contraception have been at their best offered in defense of, of a sense of women's equality. That's like a long non-answer, but it's only because I can't begin to answer the question. Yeah, well, I think the dissent was stronger than, than I anticipated it being. It was and, definitely stronger and, than Roe. Yeah, you got to admit that. It was better. Oh, but, definitely. But, and frankly, better than the, the language in Casey. Sure. I mean, isn't the language in Casey where Justice Kennedy goes off on this weird thing about... Yeah, the essence of liberty essence is, of, is yeah, defining the, the very, the this, very meaning of life. He talked to John Yu about this actually in Dallas, and he said the same thing, that it should they should have substantiated Roe with like equal protection, not privacy, and it wouldn't have been so vulnerable. What will be interesting, if I may, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, and especially when we get these initial cases about what happens when a mother's life is in danger or her health is at serious risk and the state's laws don't provide for an exception, we're going to see arguments, very libertarian arguments, about the, the, the inalienable right of personal self-defense. We've seen this among libertarians on questions of right to try, sort of life-saving medical treatment and so on. One of the things I'm sort of curious to see play out is how is arguments about that, about your, your right to defend your own life and health, privacy, arguments about stare decisis, how they all play out in the aftermath of Roe, where Roe isn't the center of all of this, defining the terms about this. I can only imagine how many people on the right and left alike over the last 50 years have argued about stare decisis, privacy, individual liberty, all with sort of Roe looming over them because abortion is so fundamentally different for so many reasons than anything else we grapple with as a society. Again, which is why it's such a weighty issue for both sides. I'm very interested to see how the arguments about defense of, of life and health play out when they're so, not about defending so Roe per Justice se. Alito makes a, a major point about that. He says all these, when we talk about other issues, contraception, interracial marriage, homosexuality, he, he says those are all different because they don't involve the life of an unborn fetus. I mean, I think, am I right? He says that yeah. frequently. Yeah. And do you agree with that? That do you, Were you a critical of Justice Thomas's opinion that said, let's go to those other things too? Often around the death penalty, you hear the line, death is different. And I think that's true here, that death and life are different. And they've set abortion apart. Again, this, this relationship between a mother, her, her child in the womb, is unlike anything else in human experience. And the legal debates around it, of course, will be unlike anything else. So I think abortion is so palpably different than those other contexts. I wrote an op-ed for, I guess it was the Wall Street Journal when the draft leaked, about why I thought these arguments about the Dobbs decision threatening same-sex marriage and other issues, that that was too superficial. First of all, same-sex marriage, when the court decided the Obergefell case and announced a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, it was grounded not just in the right to privacy that undergirded Roe, it was also defined in terms of equal protection. So already on its face, it's different. And by the way, overturning the precedents on same-sex marriage would have so many collateral effects on people's now existing marriages and other family relations. The stare decisis analysis is just different. Mm-hmm. Griswold on contraception, Lawrence v. Texas on sodomy, on, sodomy on, on sexual relations. That's closer to Roe in that it was this right to privacy but it is still fundamentally different in terms of the taking or protecting of a second human life that I think in every other aspect 
defenders of abortion rights, they argue that abortion is such an important right because pregnancy is so fundamentally different. To suddenly sort of group it in with all these other things, I was really struck. I was stunned by that. That's one thing I guess Phoebe I was surprised by. The eagerness with which for decades now, any argument about stare decisis, people would say, well, this is actually really about Roe. Something when Roe, the president, was actually at stake, you had so many people saying this is actually about all those other things. Well, Justice Thomas sort of opened the door for it in his, in his, in his concurrence opinion. He said, yep. why not let it be about those other things? None of the other conservative justices went along with him on that. And Kavanaugh explicitly said, I'm not going there. Yeah. One last question about the I've got we're going to talk about Justice Roberts in a minute. But I want to ask a question about Justice Barrett. Mm-hmm. So she's at the court. This, this is this big opinion. She reads this dissent. What would you, if you were her clerk, would you have said, you know, Justice Barrett, maybe you should write a concurrence on this? I was surprised that she didn't write separately. When the draft leaked and we hadn't seen any concurrences or dissents, I thought, well, it, it makes sense that Alito would write it because he is sort of the center of the, of the conservative block of justices. I expected Justice Thomas to write separately on a few issues, including ones he ended up not writing about. I kind of thought he'd return to an issue he raised 20 years ago about the limits of federal power to legislate on these issues, maybe even on 14th Amendment right to life for, for yeah. unborn children. He wrote on other things. I, I expected Kavanaugh to want to write separately. I thought Barrett would as well on issues of stare decisis. She spent her entire academic career um, writing extremely thoughtful and interesting academic papers on what it means to be a, a legal system with precedent, with stare decisis. And so I thought she would have a lot more to say on that. So I guess I, I was surprised. I was surprised. I think uh, from my own perspective, the, the rhetoric in the dissent about infringement on the liberty of women mm-hmm. is so strong and unresponded to. And I think there is a good response to it. I don't think you've really given it today, but that's okay. Robert, what's the good response <laughs> yeah, to it? Well, I have to think hard about it. I really have to. I mean, when you go up against Justice Kagan, you have to really be on your toes. I have to really think hard about it. I think it's something that there is an answer. And I think Justice Barrett could have given that answer. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Anything more on Dobbs? I mean, I guess on Roberts. Just, yes. I think that overall people were expecting the overturning of Roe to take longer. What is your read on like his grip on conservatives or the court overall right now? I thought going into this case that Roberts approach would turn out to be his approach would have purchase of more minds on the court. I was kind of curious to see where Kavanaugh would wind up on this, maybe Barrett, this idea that for purposes of deciding this particular case, all you need to see is that the Mississippi statute was not an undue burden on the right to abortion. Yeah, you need to roll back Planned Parenthood versus Casey a little bit, but you didn't need to go further. Yeah. I clearly had that that impressed neither the other four conservatives, other five conservatives, nor the the three progressives on the court. Nobody was was interested in that argument. I think Roberts actually made some good points in that opinion that actually the state, Mississippi in this case, they did originally tee this case up as being much more limited. They framed the argument in a way that really allowed the court and almost created a responsibility for the court to decide it more narrowly. I, I like Alito's opinion better, but I think there is something really to be said for Chief Justice well, Roberts' opinion. I never would have thought the conservatives would have gone along with that. They were going, Roe was wrongly decided. They wanted to overturn Roe for sure. There isn't, again, coming back to the dissent, and she doesn't treat it very thoroughly, but she just says, we don't go there either. She cites the chief justice's opinion and says, no, we don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. But why wouldn't they have thought, maybe we'll support that approach and see if by doing that they were able to 
get Kavanaugh or get one of the others. I mean, I don't quite understand why they didn't even give it a, a, an opening. Well, okay. At the first level, I'll say this. The majority, even if any of the justices in the majority were at least open to or curious about this middle approach, it became clear to them, I guess, through oral argument and the debates, there was just no principled line short of overturning or renouncing the Roe precedent. There really was no half measures on this. What's the old line? You can't be half pregnant. There was just no halfway on this one either. And the same with the majority, where the dissent ultimately, I mean, I understand they, the justices were writing in terms of equal protection, or equality, and women's rights, but ultimately their defense of, of Roe and Casey was a defense of stare decisis. And so sort of going halfway back on precedent probably just seemed like the first step to going all the way back on precedent. Yeah, I think their arguments on stare decisis are very weak. And I don't agree with you that the language about liberty is is what we're going to hear a lot about. Can, one last thing about Roberts, by the way, when this case was decided, even before it was decided, when the draft leaked, you had all the, a tidal wave of discussion about how Roberts really wasn't the chief justice anymore. He lost control of the yeah. court. Just as Roe and abortion sort of distorted so many aspects of our politics and the law, it also distorted our perception of the court. Because it's true Roberts was alone in this case, in this one case. He was in, according to the, the stats that SCOTUS blog puts together at the end of every term, these are really great. If people are interested, look these up. Roberts was in the majority in 95% of all cases this year and in 93% of the non-unanimous cases, more than any other justice except he tied with Kavanaugh. And when you look at how this has been over time, he was in the majority more this year than in any other previous year, except it looks like October, the 2019 to 2020 term. So he's in the majority almost more than ever. And I think actually his approach in Dobbs, while it, it won over none of his colleagues in this extraordinary case, I think it exemplifies why Roberts is such an important figure in the court going forward. And then we saw this the, the subsequent week in the, the West Virginia versus EPA case where he was suddenly writing the majority opinion in that major administrative case that was a win for conservatives. And then a case decided the same day, he writes a majority in an administrative law case that was a win for the progressives. He's still very, he is the chief justice. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's talk about the EPA case. You all, my silly, simplistic way of looking at the way AEI scholars were preparing for that case was that you were all counting on the deference, the Chevron deference doctrine to be called into play and some progress being made there. And then they came out with this major questions doctrine. Yeah. Was that a surprise to you? And how did you feel that ended up? This one was definitely not a surprise for me and I think a lot of people. The major questions doctrine, which for folks, all the, the actual functional non-human yeah, uh, yeah, beings yeah. on listening to this podcast, not the lawyers, the major questions doctrine is a pretty recent Supreme Court doctrine that says when we're interpreting a statute, very skeptical of an agency's interpretation of a statute that would suddenly give the agency all kinds of new, broad, transformative powers. For the most important economic and political issues of our time, we, the court, are going to presume that Congress itself is going to decide these issues, not agencies. The, the, this climate case at the end of the term was not the first time this came up. The COVID-related cases earlier in the year, the, the eviction moratorium and the vaccine mandate, mm -hmm. those decisions where the court pushed back against the agencies also had similar sort of terms. They didn't always call it major questions. This case, the climate dispute, has been the core of major questions debates, not just this year, but going back to the Obama years. When the, President Obama's at EPA teed up the Clean Power Plan, and it made its way quickly through the courts, and then the Supreme Court froze it while Justice Scalia was still alive, but then he died while the case was pending. 
this was clearly going to be the big major questions doctrine case, that and net neutrality. That issue sort of tailed these climate regulations through the Obama years, the Trump years, and now the Biden administration. And so I think it's a major, I didn't, no pun intended, it's a major development, but we shouldn't overstate it. This really is, it's, it's going to be important in exceptional cases. It's not the new normal. But how is it different from the deference issue? Tell, oh. Just explain to our listeners what this is in relation to a, a, a rollback of the deference issue. They're very, very related. Lawyers often throw around the term Chevron deference. It's a case from the 80s. Up until the mid-80s, the D.C. Circuit, the Supreme Court, other courts often sort of micromanaged agencies, said, you're not regulating enough, go do more. Justice Scalia, beginning in his time as an AEI scholar, I'll point out, in the late 70s and early 80s, was very worried about seeing so much judicial micromanagement of agencies. And so in the 80s, even before Scalia joins the court, the Supreme Court decides the Chevron case where they said, when an agency is administering an ambiguous statute, one that's not written in totally clear terms, but leaves some discretion to the agency, we, the courts, should defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of that statute, even if we judges might have picked a better interpretation. As long as the agency is being reasonable here, we'll allow their interpretation to stand so that two things can happen. First, experts can sort of have some real weight on this, the administration of the statute but also so that presidential elections can have consequences and each new administration yeah. can bring its own policy judgments. That was a very good decision. You can have too much of a good thing. And as we saw as the decades sort of progressed, agencies asserting ever more transformative powers in old statutes. And so this doctrine and relying emerged. on Scalia's opinion in that case to justify it. Relying on Chevron deference. Yeah, Chevron sorry, deference. thanks for bringing right. me back to the point of all this. And so the major questions doctrine is in a few different ways a check on Chevron deference. Yeah. And it's very much rooted in what we call the non-delegation doctrine, right. the subject of a recent book edited by our colleagues uh, Peter Wallison and John Yu. Yeah. Cited the idea, in the opinion. Yeah. It's cited, that's right, cited in Gorsuch's, uh, in Gorsuch's mega footnote, this idea that Congress has been vested with the legislative power by the Constitution, and when it gives too much discretion in it to, to agencies, it is effectively delegated away its powers. The major questions doctrine is in some ways an echo of non-delegation. Well, did Justice Scalia ever regret that opinion? Did he ever take it back? Did he ever modify it? So he never wrote Chevron. That, that happened before he was on the court, but oh. he was its staunchest defender throughout his time on the court. Okay. He wrote a great uh, law review article in the Duke Law Journal in 1989, making, like, I think, the best case for Chevron deference. Near the end of his life, in conversations, he started sort of expressing some regrets about Chevron, not about his version of Chevron, but kind of like Chief Justice Roberts's opinion in Dobbs, virtually nobody agreed with it, really took the Scalia approach on Chevron deference. And, and so I was here, even before his passing, I'd hear from judges or people who were in conversations with him, boy, Nino is starting to have some second thoughts on the whole Chevron thing. And he never, he hints at this in some of his later judicial opinions, I think, but he never explicitly renounced it. My guess is that somewhere in the Supreme Court archives is a draft judicial opinion that will someday see the light, and we'll mm -hmm. all see then. But but he never came around. And I want to say, Robert, I'm actually, I'm not pro-Chevron, but I'm kind of anti-anti-Chevron. Okay. Okay. Scalia and Rehnquist and others had very good reasons for being wary of judges getting too confident in asserting their own sort of view of some of these these statutes onto agencies and constantly right. micromanaging them. I think 
you know, Justice Scalia wanted sort of deference going forward. With every new election, agencies might change their mind. Justice Thomas, who really has led the reconsideration of Chevron, he doesn't want any deference at all. Once the law has been written, the judges just need to interpret it. I think they're both somewhat right, and the answer is somewhat in the middle. The judges should leave some room for deference early on in a statute's life, but at some point you have to liquidate the meaning of a statute and say, okay, now we the courts are going to say what the law is, and at this point going forward, if you want to change the law, you got to actually change the law. But when an agency is trying to do something that's so significantly different and apart yeah. from what the Congress has ever put in a statute, that is a major question. Yes. And it's transformative. It, it seems to me the court's opinion is pretty solid in saying that's something Congress should decide. Yeah. And when you get into the minutiae and the details, there's a balancing. What can you allow and what goes too far? And I think the court came to a good conclusion here. I love this opinion. And also, I like that these concerns about delegation are being channeled into this doctrine, among other things, are being channeled into this doctrine because courts should tread very lightly before striking down statutes as unconstitutional. They should do it as a last resort, not a first resort. And I think the major questions doctrine is a great way to sort of do justice to those constitutional principles without striking down statutes willy-nilly. And I mean, sometimes statutes need to be struck, struck down, but I like this as a sort of initial move rather than a really, really gung-ho non-delegation doctrine, which Scalia was wary about. He wrote an article about it when he was here at AEI, and I think he was wary of it for, for good reasons. Okay, so now the big case in the next term is the court's decision to take this case about deference is, uh, deference, maybe not the right term, but state legislatures' power over monitoring and of elections. Yeah. And as I understand it, the language in the Constitution is elections shall be governed by state legislatures. And so some people are using that to justify not allowing state courts to overrule state legislatures' decisions on the administration of elections. Yeah. And where are you on this? You know, I wish I brought my pocket constitution <laughs> with me. I forgot, and now I probably owe like a nickel in a jar somewhere yeah, here. Yeah. I'm very wary of the doctrine of the independent state legislature, the independent state legislature doctrine. Thank now, the Lord. Now, yeah. the, the case is being brought by some of the, the best and smartest lawyers in town, David Thompson and the folks at Cooper and Kirk. So you, I got to take the case seriously, take the ideas seriously. But just to unpack this, in Article One of the Constitution for the election of congressmen, it says that state legislatures will determine the time, place, and manner of congressional elections, although it does leave some space for the federal government, same clause. Mm -hmm. And then in Article Two, with the president and his elections, there's a, a similar provision uh, that says that state legislatures shall set the mode for appointing the electors for the president. Because the Constitution speaks specifically about state legislatures, it raises an interesting question. To what extent can those state legislatures be limited by the state courts or the state constitution? My view of this, again, my, my sort of amateur, amateurish view of this, is that the U.S. Constitution talks about state legislatures, but those state legislatures are creatures of state constitutions subject to all the basic governance of state constitutional law, including the role of courts. Now, that said, oftentimes, to say the least, judges go beyond the legitimate limits of their, of their powers. They reinterpret statutes in illegitimate, improper ways. They really do change the law in the guise of interpreting the law. And yeah, it does feel like the, the judges are putting themselves in charge of these electoral decisions. 
be very interested to see how the court, the questions the court asks about how you would draw lines around this theory of independent state legislatures. And just to be clear, are we taking the governors out too? Is that is the theory of this case that the state legislatures do this decision without a, a sign of the statute by the governor, that they can just do it independently, both the governor and the courts? That's the most aggressive version of, of I'll, I'll tell you, Robert, the Constitution doesn't refer to the governors. You know, governors are, are in the middle of presidential elections in the electoral process, but that's because of the Electoral Count Act, um, not because of the Constitution. And frankly, I get a little worried when the governors, as opposed to the state legislatures, assert themselves too much in the, the administration of elections, because oftentimes the governor is the most important candidate in the state at that mm-hmm. time. I'm not sort of a super fan of the independent state legislature doctrine, but I like it a lot more than the independent state governor doctrine. Well, I, agree I know, with I know that. you're not suggesting that. I agree with that, but it yeah. just seems like it's kind of a. But let's just take a case that I followed a little bit concerning state courts and, and maybe on the drawing of lines. Does this also cover the drawing of lines? Yeah. Okay, so, right. so the New York State Legislature and the governor yeah. in this year of post-census new congressional district line drawing drew an awful apportionment where mm-hmm. it clearly tilted aggressively to support one party over the other. And the, the state court in New York, populated by, I think, all Democratic appointees, and by the way, the, the party favored by the state legislature's line drawing was the Democrats, mm-hmm. in an amazing decision threw it all out mm-hmm. and drew totally nonpartisan lines that now actually we're going to have competitive races in New York state. Yeah. Now, if the people that are supporting this litigation were to win, that would not be allowed. The intervention of a state court stop of the reason they did it was because the state constitution requires lines to be drawn without, you know, a partisan intent. Yeah. Is that, do we really want that world? To, to exist. And just to be clear, the case the Supreme Court's going to hear is a North Carolina districting case. So it's not the presidential side. And it's North Carolina is a state where they have what's called a free elections clause. A number of states have these. New York, I guess, has a similar one. First of all, even the U.S. Supreme Court can't save New York from itself sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I get a, anytime somebody says we need an independent commission yeah, 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 or yeah. nonpartisan districting, I start to like make sure I still have my wallet. Yeah. So I just I worry about putting too much faith in any sort of neutral expert body. But I think maybe the best place for these things to be solved is in the state courts under state constitutions and for the U.S. Supreme Court to leave some space for the state constitutions to really have some effect. But again, my instincts are all against the independent state legislature theory as I understand it, but sometimes my instincts are wrong. And the lawyers in this case are some of my favorite in town. But, uh, but, so. but handicap the court. Based on your experience, you know, the, these justices, it will be decided by the conservatives. Yeah. They have the majority. And in the, the case you may have heard of, Bush v. Gore, Rehnquist, Scalia, and Thomas sort of in passing sort of seemed favorable towards this theory. So that's another reason why you need to give it some weight. When all you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. And so in a case like this, I start to think about discretion and uh, my, my administrative state obsessions. And this obviously is not an administrative state case. But I'll be very curious to see how Kavanaugh and Roberts especially approach an argument that seems to be an argument for unbounded discretion in the hands of, in this case, the legislatures. My instinct is Roberts would be wary of that. On the other hand, in a case a few years ago out of Arizona, 
Roberts dissented loudly from a Supreme Court decision that gave short shrift to state legislatures in the redistricting process. So he could come out as the biggest fan of state legislatures of all. This really is one where I have no idea how this one's going to play out. So I'm going to get out the popcorn and and sort of enjoy the show. Okay. Phoebe, anything more? I mean, I guess I just have been discouraged to see how results-oriented everyone has become about Supreme Court rhetoric. It seems like anything about process. And in my service on that commission... Very clear. It was not a very exclusive club. There were 36 <laughs> people. It was a big group project. I came away sort of reassured and horrified by the legitimacy arguments. Reassured by the fact that so many of my colleagues, even ones with whom I'd have profound disagreements and substance, they too sort of understood the stakes and were very, very wary of delegitimizing the court. At the same time, the eagerness with which people around the commission, people who, who submitted testimony, people who wrote about the commission, their eagerness to just preemptively delegitimize the court was really, really horrifying. I think though the worst offender on this has been Senator Warren of Massachusetts, who had a really terrible op-ed in the Boston Globe in December, where she said literally everything the Roberts Court does is, preempt- is presumptively illegitimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw the stakes raised by, I think it was Congressman Raskin, when the, the Alito draft leaked in the Dobbs case. And he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said basically, if I remember correctly, We should all keep in mind that the Supreme Court has basically always been an illegitimate tool of the powerful against the weak. And we had like a brief moment in the 20th century where the Supreme Court did some good things. But we need to remember that it really is the enemy of the people. This is something I'll be spending a lot of time working on in in the year ahead, thinking through the nature of the court's legitimacy, how we think of the legitimacy of the court. And it can't just be an abstract you know, did the court decide the case according to originalist principles? That's the begin for me, the beginning of legitimacy. But ultimately, the, the court is part of a government under a Republican, smaller Republican constitution. It is accountable to the people one way or another. We, should t- we, the defenders of the court, should take that seriously. But I'm really dismayed by the rhetoric and really worried about what the next couple of years will entail. I agree with you on that. And I, I always say to people, read the opinions, read all the opinions, read the dissents and the concurrences. And given the cacophony of the political debate in America, state legislatures and politicians and presidents, the court takes these issues seriously and they grapple with them in a serious intellectual way tied to our history. And these are good faith people doing their best with difficult challenges. And to have this rhetoric that is coming out of challenging the legitimacy of the court is just, it's appalling and it's destructive. And it's going to undermine the faith and confidence that Americans have in their system. And that's not going to be helpful. Progressives don't have a monopoly on this, by the way. Like, yeah, at this moment, they're the ones that are dissatisfied with the court. But 30 years ago, when the Supreme Court upheld Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you had not an overwhelming attack on the court, but in conservative intellectual circles, you had very serious people saying very, very harsh things about the court, questioning the court's legitimacy. And you've seen populist movements attacking the court from the right through the 20th century and beforehand. So these are really timeless issues. I mean, one of the things I enjoyed about serving on the commission was really looking at the history of this all the way back to the the Adams and Jefferson administrations. So this is a timeless debate in our country. But Robert, I think you struck upon a key point, which is for as much as I like to talk about judicial restraint, and I think that is an important part of the court's legitimacy, is is judicial restraint rightly understood, requires self-restraint by all of us. Myself included, I'm just as liable to fly off the handle, and maybe I gave short shrift to the dissent in Dobbs. You yeah. called me on, but I'd say we don't. Our system doesn't require all Americans to be like amateur lawyers 
who like sit back in their, their private libraries and like smoke their pipe and think deeply about Supreme Court decisions. We should expect that most people will think about the results. But I think it's incumbent upon anybody in a position to take the time to think about these things. Journalists, professors, lower court judges, teachers. It's incumbent upon them to take their role seriously mm-hmm. and really do justice to the opinions, um, approach them with an open mind, criticize them in the best possible way, not the shallowest possible way. That's what our system requires. Or the harshest possible way. There's no need for this harshness of rhetoric. We have to have respect for the rule of law. Yeah, but court is dealing with momentous issues. I don't blame people for having harsh criticism of the court. I just think reflexive or shallow criticism is the problem. And if if somebody has a well-thought-out and harsh criticism of the court— well, but the harsh, I meant just challenging their legitimacy. Yeah. All right. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. This was fun. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.